0: Look back before we look ahead, because I was just reading over some notes and thinking through it. We've talked about for the last several weeks, and uh, realized maybe without intending to, things were going somewhere, which is always good. Usually when I don't mean to is when I end up stumbling upon the best thing. If you remember about three weeks ago, we talked about uh, the Old Testament books of Exodus. One book of Exodus, the Old Testament books, chapters 19 and 33, we talked about the glory and the awesomeness of God coming down, and and, and we talked about worship in that context isn't anything bigger or greater than simply focus on the God who is worthy of our worship. And then a couple weeks ago, we we talked about something seemingly totally different. We talked about, in Corinthians, about what what the gospel is, that there's this good news that we have to proclaim, that, that Christianity is is created and sustained by, as John Piper puts it, news, particularly the good news that God has entered into humanity, has entered into our world and offered for us salvation. And then last week we looked at the, the end of Romans chapter 11 and this exultant Paul talking about how incredible the, the salvation that this one who entered into history gave us. And we said, uh, most important lesson we all need to learn, it's not about not about us. It's about something bigger and, and about a God who is, in fact, worthy. And today I want to talk about, well, church. Interesting word, isn't it? Church. What is church? Why do we have church? What is, what is this about? How does it fit into that? And I wanted to start with a quote from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's sort of one of the, he's a British preacher remarkable guy he he was a mega church pastor before there were mega churches or at least before there were microphones too which is pretty remarkable back in those days um he actually founded a college i didn't know this i just heard it this week one of the ways that you qualified for preaching in those days was they measured the size of your chest as a way to determine the lung volume you might have and if you had a big enough chest Therefore, big enough lungs, you could qualify to preach because you could—you would have to yell, you would have to. What's the word? Project—that's the word. Enunciate and project out to these huge crowds, hopefully of people coming to hear. And uh, that was one of the things. And Spurgeon was able to to project a couple thousand people at times at the Park Street, and then later Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, He's—he's one of the kind of those that eras hero pastors and this is what he he says about church he says give yourself to the church you that are members of the church have not found it perfect can i get an amen and i hope that you feel almost glad that you have not if i had never joined a church till i had found one that was perfect i would have never joined one at all And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, listen to this, it is the dearest place on earth to us. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep. It is the home for Christ's family. Maybe he was on to something. Maybe he was on to something. I I read that, and I I think about the idea of the perfect church, and it takes me back to seminary. Uh, one of the last year we were there, Dr. Paige Patterson, who's got a big name in Baptist circles, became president, and I remember him talking to one of our classes, and, and he, he kind of thought it was interesting that students would come to him because he was probably one of the most prominent names in Baptist life, that if he would somehow recommend you to a church, you had made it. I mean, that was like the end. You, you know, He recommended you were going places. He said students would come in and, and sit down with him and say, um... You know, Dr. Patterson, would you recommend me if, if, if you know of any churches? Said, well, what kind of church are you looking for? He said, Well, the, the students would invariably say, You know, I'm looking for a church well, that just, just believes the Word of God, is committed to the Bible, has people that that live out the truth of the Bible. I'm looking for a church that's full of people who give sacrificially to the work of the gospel, who, who have no problems with, with finances. I'm looking for a church with people who give of themselves, of their time. They, they volunteer. They, they get in line to serve each other. I'm looking for a church that loves the pastor and respects them. And Dr. Patterson would inevitably look at them and laugh and say, Listen, buddy, if that church was out there, they'd get my resume for it. I'd ever give them yours. Because that church sounds good, yeah? But the reality is, how how did um, Dr. Spurgeon put it? He said, the church is the nursery for God's weak children. That sounds about like church, doesn't it? Church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and they grow strong. We we are that that place that God has set aside and, and given us that we could gather together. And I want to talk about that today, and, and as we think about what that means, what what does the Bible have to say about that? that should be one of the questions we ask, and I want to look today at Ephesians chapter 2, and, and we might jump ahead to chapter 3 and back to some other places, but Ephesians chapter 2 is where I want to start today, and we'll, we'll eventually get down to about verse 17 is where we'll start, and then, then go from there toward the end of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, if we remember these things when we look in the new testament and the books the letters particularly of paul they were written often to places that were churches that somehow he had a hand in getting started and ephesus we know later was probably the place where his his uh, disciple his son in the faith timothy was a leader uh, and so he writes back to this church at ephesus to give them some encouragement to help them along the way being what it was that we call the church and in chapter 2 Verse 17, Paul writes this. Well, let me just read this. This is the ESV, if you're you're wondering. And he came, meaning he being Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Stop right there. We'll get a little bit further. So here he says, "What what is the church?" Is kind of where I started. What what is the church? And Paul defines it for us a little bit there. Well, how did the church begin? What did Paul do, and, and what did Christ do when he started the church? Well, it says in verse seventeen that he came and he preached peace to those who were far away or far off, and those who were near. Now, what does that mean? On well, Paul's day, we might think Paul as a, a Jewish man growing up in Jewish faith learning those things, would often go, when he would go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue, the place of Jewish worship, and talk to the people there because those Jewish people that attended the synagogue had been steeped in the things of God their whole life. They had gone into that place and learned and memorized and knew how God was at work in them and how he had been at work in their history and how he had given them his, his revelation of the law and then later established a kingdom, and, and then we see from Paul's perspective, from the New Testament perspective, given in the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah in the person of Jesus. And so Paul would go there and say, hey, listen, all this stuff that you've memorized and learned and been talking about and been worshiping around, all of this points to something, and the thing it points to, the person it points to, is Jesus. And so that would be part of the thing he would do would go and try to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was the hope for Messiah they were the ones we might say were near now that was my experience not that I was Jewish although with a name like Rosenbaum as I often say you might wonder um, and I still wonder yeah we'll just leave it at that I'll get in trouble if I go much further uh, but, but I was one of those who if you've been around how many of you have been in church like your whole life just curious okay so we got a lot you know what the cradle roll is? You know what the cradle roll is? Yeah, okay, that's like church things used to happen when families in the church had a baby. The baby was enrolled in Sunday school, basically, in child care, not like daily child care, but Sunday child care for the church. It was called the cradle roll. It was just assumed that was going to happen. And you know, Denise's parents, uh, you know, his, her father being a, a pastor, how old were you the first day you went to church? I've heard this story before. Not six years, six days. And and really, you kind of came home from the hospital and went to church in a lot of ways, right? Because it wasn't the parsonage like right there. I mean, that's that's the experience a lot of people have. We grow up in church, and we're around it. That was my experience. My dad and mom were involved, and so from the very
1: first days of
0: my life, first time I was able, I was in church, was in the cradle roll, grew up in the nursery and all that sort of thing. And, and I was relatively young, about seven years old, when I came to understand that I needed a Savior, and Jesus was that Savior, and placed my faith in him, was baptized, and so on and so forth. That's kind of the idea of things, people that are near. But but I want you to see, what does Jesus preach to people that are near? It says particularly, he came and preached peace to those who are near. Why would he preach peace? And this is, I think, the, the part that, that I want to camp out on for a minute, because I, a lot of times we think about church world and think about, those of us who kind of grew up in church, as we've always sort of known or had it together and just knew how it worked. That's probably true that we did. We kind of got an idea of how the church thing worked. But but when we connect it to that Old Testament reality of these brought up in the Jewish faith, and when you think about the Jewish faith, the number of commandments that they have to keep and the detail with which they have to keep them, and the different celebrations that they have to observe, the festivals and all, it begins to be an overwhelming thing, and you can, growing up in church and being around church world, get really, really involved in religious activity, can't you? In fact, at the end of our service, we're going to tell you some religious activities and beg you to be involved in them guilt you into committing to, you know, we won't go that far, but we do that as churches. We have a lot of religious activity. And I think what happens is many people mistake religious activity for a relationship with God. And they think, and maybe you think, and maybe I thought at one time in my life that if I just did this religious activity, somehow it would earn me points with God, and it would make me okay with God. But what happens, I've observed, and you've observed, and people who write books about it have observed, is as we raise people in church, raise kids in church that go through it, and if what they hear day in and day out, week in and week out, is that what church is is about this religious activity after a while, that just gets old. That just gets tiresome. And many, the surveys say, The first chance they get to get out from under that kind of onus of this religious activity, a lot of 17, 18, 19-year-olds, when they move out, abandon church. Because to them, it's been constant religious activity with no connection to a relationship with God. And I think what Jesus does is he comes into the picture and he preaches peace to us who are near, to us who know the religious activity... We might even say to the Jew, to the requirements of the law and are burdened by it. No, I want to move you out from under that and connect you in relationship to God so that you're freed from that burden of religious activity or legalism or whatever it is. that, that, That hostility that we can build up toward God who just keeps asking us to do stuff is removed. And so there's no more hostility to God who just heaps burdens upon it but there's a reality I have a relationship with God outside of that responsibility. And in, out of relationship, then I can serve and obey God differently. Now, you know this, and you're walking around life most of the time, because the people that you are close in relationship with, you do things for them gladly. So, I could come, and I could ask you to do my dishes after a dinner party for 10 and you would say really you want me to come to your house and do your dishes after you just had 10 people me not being one of them in your home and you had great fun and you laughed and you had like appetizer and salad and a main course and desserts which means you got like 17 plates for everybody that's 170 plates that I have to wash you want me to come to your house and do that forget about it so instead we have children And they're not invited to the party either, but after it's over, they get to come and do the dishes. And they gladly do it every time because there's a relationship. Maybe that's not the best example. No, but the point is, I could ask you to do a lot of things for me, and you could feel this great obligation and wonder what, here's the question you ask, what right does he have to ask me to do that? Because there's not, maybe not that relationship but have you ever been, I'm going to change the kid's analogy, to a dinner party? You're sitting at the table, and you know it's time to clear maybe the, the, the dessert. How many of you naturally just pick up your plate and offer to help? And you don't think it's a burden? You don't think it's a, oh, how dare they? I'm the guest here. You just naturally think, there's a lot of dishes here. How might I help speed the problem? Why? Because I'm enjoying the company. and I don't want my host or hostess to have to be stuck at the sink for 30 minutes washing my dishes. I'd rather help them clean this very quickly so we can get back to the relationship. See the difference? I think that's the picture maybe that, that's in mind here. Christ preaches peace to us who are near who so that we don't get so hostile to a God because we don't have a relationship with Him who just seems to keep asking stuff on us just wants us to do more stuff. I come to church and they pass that little round thing and they want me to put money in it. Don't like that. Why would I do that? It's like God just wants my money. A lot of people hate that. God doesn't need your money. I promise. Church does, but you know, he's scared. The reason we pass that isn't because somehow God's a few dollars short this month and you've got to make it up for him. No, the reason we pass it's an act of worship. It's part of a worship service because those of us who know God and recognize all that He has done for us and the relationship we have for Him are offering a, a tithe, a gift to Him as a way, in relationship, to help clean the dishes after the party we were at. That's all it that is because we want to get back to the party. Make you look at offering a little bit differently if I'm lucky. So God, through Jesus, preaches peace to us. He removes that dividing wall of hostility so that we can recognize the relationship that we have, not the responsibility it just seems to, in, without the context of relationship, is heaped on us. But it also says he preaches peace to those who are far away. Those are people who who don't maybe have that background or that connection or that, that share. In, in Paul's day, those who were Gentiles, those who were outside of the nation of Israel and didn't have, all the history that they had and all the traditions that they had and all the teaching of the law and the the festivals that they had. These are people outside that, that somehow, through Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles and others, were brought in from being separated from God or feeling like outsiders, and peace was preached to them so that they could come into this relationship with God. And so there's all this stuff that's not... Their background, but now has new meaning because Christ has brought them into relationship with God. And so Christ comes and preaches peace to the near and to the far. Why? The next verse tells us he preaches peace so that for excuse me, he goes on and says verse 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens of with God's people and members of God's household. Pretty important thing. Now, we live in America, which means we have, well, we live in the Keys, particularly a pretty safe part of the world, yes? I mean, maybe a few years ago, a lot of you just left your doors open and your keys in your car and all that sort of thing. Maybe it's not quite that safe these days. Did anybody get out in traffic yesterday? Who loves lobster season here? <sighs> Facebook was blowing up for local Keys People. About the uh, traffic and watch out! Don't go out of your house. Hide, hide, run for the hill. No, and I know some of you are here for. Thank you for coming. Is that okay? okay. But it's you know one of those things, right? Um, you know we, we live in this area; it's pretty safe. We like it. We're able to kind of go around. And all, uh, we take that for granted. We we had a lock in here. Um, it was a long time ago, and, and we did an Olympic theme, so it must have been an Olympic year, I guess and uh, Bill and Heather were, Bill was the, the youth leader at that point, point. Um, and, and they were, we were in the fellowship hall, and he had a tiki torch, because the idea was the Olympic torch. This was hysterical. It's like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, because it's a lock-in, because youth leaders like to stay up all night with a bunch of teenagers, because they're, anyway. Um, and so he's got the tiki torch. Unbeknownst to him, he's standing right under the smoke detector. And a few minutes later, after, ma- he's, you know, making this great appeal, and, you know, all this and the alarm goes off, and we're fortunate. We're right here at the church, and the fire department is like, I can see it. If, tree, if you want not too many leaves on the trees, and so a few minutes later, because you know, we have the system, and so it automatically alerts them. And all, here come the firemen! Woo woo woo! I'm sure all the neighbors were thrilled. That's great, but, but it's really remarkable to think that even though there was no emergency, thank God, that that quickly the fire alarm goes off, the monitoring station calls the fire department fire department gets here and is ready to respond, right? It's remarkable. We, we are in a, in a place that we just kind of take for granted those services. We have law enforcement that are out and about, and, and, and there. You know, we have many in our church that have, have been or are in law enforcement, and it's great to have them looking out for the interests of our community and for us as citizens. It's awesome to have those securities. Different world back in Paul's day, and for us to understand what he would mean by saying what he says here, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're citizens. Think about Paul himself. Paul is having this moment where he's seized by a crowd. He's kind of agitated the group, and and uh, because of his preaching and other things, and they're going to punish him. And what does he do? He appeals to them because he is a Roman citizen, and everything stops. You're a what? Oh, you're a citizen. Oh, the rules are different for you. See, we can't just take you out and beat you or punish you. We have to go through the proper channels, and he appeals to Caesar, in fact. And he is, this this idea that he's just going to be taken care of as a regular guy stops, and a whole new course of action begins because Paul, as a citizen, had certain rights that those who weren't citizens of Rome didn't have. When it came out, everything changed. And for Paul to write this, he's. We got that kind of idea in mind and we think about what it means to be in relationship with god but not just in relationship as as somehow we've appeased him that's not what he's talking about we are now citizens with the saints and members of the household of god we're at the table we're we're it's not an arm's distance relationship it's a communal relationship it's a close relationship that we have been granted both those who are near and those who are far off both of them brought together as part of a household. Who's in a household? Usually the family, right? Not just anybody, but the family is in the household. Those are the ones that sit around the table. Those are the ones that have bedrooms. That's, that's a different level of relationship than those who aren't a part of the household. And Paul says the, the, the reason Jesus came to bring these two groups together was to unite them in this idea of a household. And he goes on in, in the next verse, in verse 20, and builds on He says they're built built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with christ jesus himself as the chief cornerstone now those apostles and prophets pretty important people they're the kind of the leaders the first century highest offices in the church they're the ones who were responsible for kind of organizing and taking things and so the church is built upon the foundation it says um of the apostles and Prophets, what does it mean? It mean, What do the Apostles and Prophets do? Well, as I look at Scripture, let's go back to the first sermon the Apostle Peter preached. What did he do? He's there at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. People are looking around going, these guys are drunk, and it's only 9 in the morning. And what does Peter do? Well, we're not drunk. It's just like what was said by the prophet Joel. And he quotes the Old Testament, which all those people would know. And he preaches. The apostles and prophets, what they did is took the word of God that had been given to them and preached it, expounded it, taught it, and it became kind of the, the thing that helped the church flourish. They, the, the foundation the apostles and prophets laid was the foundation of the revealed word of God. Their job was to proclaim it, and that's pretty important. Because that is really the only thing that you can build a church on. In fact, it goes on in the second part of that version and says, and, and the chief cornerstone of that foundation is Jesus Christ. The, the main bedrock thing that holds it all together is Jesus Christ himself. So these apostles and prophets preached, proclaimed the word of God, and at its heart, Kind of the the central thing of the Word of God, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the good news of the Gospel was Jesus, the Word that became flesh. Because that's kind of the weird thing. Jesus is the Word of God, but he was also like a person, and he proclaimed the Word of God. And it's that duality that that sometimes is hard for us to to understand how it can be both, but that was the case here. Jesus was sort of the, the cornerstone that held it all together. And so we're being built up. The apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus, in him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What is the church? Those last few words there, those last few verses. We're being built. We're being joined together. We're rising to become a holy temple, and we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What is the church? You know what the church is not? this building at all. You know, the church is also sort of not, in some ways, we confuse the church for being what we're doing right now. Well, I went to church. What happened when you went to church? Well, these guys got up and played some instruments and and sang, and we sang along. And then this guy got up and talked, and talked, and talked and then we sang another song, and we went home. I went to church. That's good. I'm in favor of you going to church. But what God is building isn't a bunch of places where people get together and sing songs and hear somebody talk and then sing another song and go home. That's maybe part of it, but that's not the end result. Let's not confuse this as the goal. Let's not confuse our role as God's people to get people to come to church, to come to a building, to come to a service for an hour on Sunday. If all we do is get people to come to church, we miss it. What we need to get people to come to is Jesus, the one who is the cornerstone of the church, who is the focus of all our worship, who is the only one worthy of worship. And so we come together to exalt him and allow him and exalting him to pull people to himself. We are not at church. You've heard this before, I'm sure. We are church. And I have been in church. I've been in the churchiest church when it wasn't in a building, when it was in a living room somewhere. And some friends were talking and maybe sharing some struggles and praying together. I've been in church. I've been the church for somebody else. I've, I've been in some of the churchiest church places I can be when we don't meet in this building. How about on Easter when we go out and watch the sun come up together and I get to walk out in the water with some new believers and baptize them, and all of you folks on the shore cheer as the sun rises behind us. That's pretty churchy. That's that's pretty awesome church experience. That has nothing to do with this building and this place. In fact, wherever you go, you are the church. Not you'll come to church. You are the church because what does it say here? We're being built up into a place, and and here's a wonderful phrase, we're joined together. The apostles and prophets proclaim he who is the chief cornerstone. He's the one that is the key one that holds it all together. And then we are all sorts and kinds of stones that are joined together on top of the foundation that is Jesus Christ and the church is growing to be a place where God's spirit it says is able to inhabit and indwell and manifest itself. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it gives us a little hint to what God might be up to in the church when he says this. He says in verse 10, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God that sounds pretty heady, doesn't it? Should be made known. Here's the ESV. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That's what's God up to in the church. He wants to display His manifold wisdom as we are built together different stones laid on top of he who is the chief cornerstone jesus and that thing that we call the church is what somehow god displays his manifold wisdom the church is not a, a place the church is a people the church not about doing this and having services no the church is about this truth of who god is and the cornerstone why is jesus the chief cornerstone why does that become so important and here's what i would suggest to you today The reason Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church is because it's only through him that we experience the transforming grace of Almighty God. Jesus has to be the cornerstone of the church because that's where I experience the grace of God. That's where you experience the grace of God. When you experience the grace of God, only at that point are you able to extend his grace and mercy to others after you've once experienced it. If you don't experience the grace of God and you're caught up in that that religious activity and that you got to do this you begin to look at everything based on that criteria how religiously active are you determines your value and worth in that system how many services do you attend how many offices do you hold how many committees are you on how many uh, activities do you lead or how often do you volunteer how much do you put in the plate or Whatever the other criteria is, that becomes the criteria. Here's the thing, we're always looking to slot ourselves. Because the reality is, you know, there are people in here that you attend church more than. I'm not asking you to point them out. But there are people in here that you attend church more There are people in here that attend church more than you. Isn't that good news? Maybe not. But it's not about that. It's about experiencing the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And if that's the cornerstone upon which we you know, Here's the thing. You know, what did, what did Spurgeon say? The church is the nursery of God's weak children. Look around. You are God's weak children. Can I get an amen? And you know what happens when you put a bunch of children together? We have a, we have a preschool. The daycare. On Thursdays, I get to go in there and do chapel with them. It is fun. We have a good time. We sing songs. We do some different things. There's always a fight. I mean, I'm in there 15 minutes with them, and somebody is mad at somebody else. Why? They're kids. That's what they do. You put kids together in tight quarters, make them sit still and listen to a preacher, they're going to fight. What do we do in church? We put kids together in tight quarters, make them sit still, and let's do a preacher. What are they going to do? Fight. Or sleep, but definitely one or the other. It's really your two options. We're all God. You know, you, if you haven't already, will be offended by somebody in this room. Legitimately honestly, however you want, but you will be offended, hurt, betrayed, whatever word you want to use by somebody in this room. Maybe you already have. Maybe you have several times. Anybody, staff, music folks, people in your Sunday school class, people in your row, people that's on the other side of the church, somebody that took your seat because they didn't know that was your seat. Somehow, where, how, you're going to be offended by somebody in this room. And if all we are are people who are caught up in religious activity. We're never going to get over that. We're just going to hold on to that. If it's about me trying to do what I think I need to do to make God happy and somehow you have offended me and prohibited me from making that next step up the ladder closer to God, I'm not going to like you very much. But if the cornerstone of the church is I have been transformed by the grace of God to whom I have a legitimate debt, and of whom I have legitimately offended but have experienced his grace, it is much easier for me to extend that same grace to others. He who has been forgiven much, Jesus says, loves much. And if the church is made up of people who recognize the depths of the forgiveness that we received, even those who are near, like me who grew up in church, And think, you know, I've never really been that bad. I've not really done that much that you would say are like the big sins. So, you know, really, can't be that bad. Jesus had to die for me not being that bad, right? It wasn't like Jesus could say, oh, you know what? Just whip me a few times. That'll be enough for him. He was a really good boy. had to go to the cross to die as as we heard earlier his his blood shed for me because I was that bad and when I understand I was that bad and it took that much to save me then that changes my perspective then if I'm just ratcheting up my activity a little bit to kind of think if I just prove myself somehow and I was pretty good at the church thing even growing up I need to understand that for me to be a part of what it is to be the body of Christ, the church, to be saved by the grace of God, it took the death of Jesus because I was that bad. And the transformation that came to me was total. I was dead and now I'm alive. I, I've been, The old has passed away and the new has come. All of those things in Scripture are meant to show us the contrast between who we were and who we are in Christ. And that applies to the one that wasn't that bad or to the one that could have books written about how bad they were. There's no difference between the cost for my salvation and someone else's. And when I understand that, that God has transformed me by His grace, then I am more able to demonstrate grace to someone else. And so that becomes the foundation, the chief cornerstone, and the reality in my life that I can extend the grace. And so what happens is when it says here we're joined together, that's the hard part. In fact, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, Iron sharpens iron. We talked about this Wednesday night. So one person sharpens another. I think the reason we need to be joined together is because we need to be sharpened. You know what? I told you, if you haven't already, somebody here is going to offend you. I'm pretty sure everybody in here has been annoyed by somebody else in here. Can I get a hand? If you've been annoyed by anybody else in here, just raise your hand. Let's just be honest. Just raise your hand. It's okay. If you have annoyed anybody else in here, please raise your hand. There you go. Is that easier to answer? I'm sure I have. I could list the offenses of things that I have probably done that people have been annoyed by. And and Scripture says the church were being joined together. The writer of Proverbs says, like, iron sharpening. Have you ever seen iron sharpening iron? That's a tough process, yes? You know, it, it takes some violence, we might say, for iron to sharpen. Now, I'm not suggesting violence in church. That might not be the right word. Enough of that going on in the world anyway. But but that process is not a simple, easy process. As iron sharpens another, there there are some things to happen that... It, That for the iron is pretty uncomfortable. And sometimes as we're joined together in this thing that God is doing called the church, we need the iron, sharpening iron. We need those uncomfortable spots to show us not how annoying somebody else is, but how deficient we are. And having experienced the grace of God, we can look at it through that lens. Not that God needs me to tell you you're annoying, but God needs you to show me that he's still got some work to do fit me together to make this thing work so that the manifold wisdom of God can be demonstrated to our world by the fact that all of us who are so different and from different places and from different backgrounds and have different experiences are somehow fit together around the common idea that there is this truth that Jesus is Lord and he died for our sins and we believe and we're restored to relationship with God and we've experienced his grace in a way that allows us to show his grace to each other so that when people look in, they go... There's something about how they know each other, how they love each other. Isn't that? Hey, wasn't that in the Bible somewhere? That know we are Christians by our love. What do you think? If they were rating us these days, and they are, what would they say? They're Christians. I know it by their love. On a scale of one to ten, what would we get? What would I get? I want to close this. Actually, a better closing for two weeks ago sermon, but I just thought of it this week, so you're stuck. There's a there's a section in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus tells parable after parable after parable after parable, and all of them describe the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. One after another, he tells these stories that are supposed to illustrate what the kingdom is like. And you would be familiar with most of them. And one of the parables is actually one verse long, aren't you, grad? That's the one I'm talking about. One whole verse in Matthew chapter 13. And it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Interesting parable. Interesting idea. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. I could get that. Treasure, yeah, that makes sense. When you come to know Christ, when you see what he's done for you, that's that's good stuff. That's good news. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That is something worth treasuring. But then it says, when you find it, what are you willing to do to hold on to it? What does this man in this parable do? He goes and in his joy sold all he had. Quick quiz. How many of you, if I told you today you need to sell all you had, would say, I can't wait, preacher? Exactly. But this says, in his joy, he went and sold all he had. Why? Because he needed that field. He wanted that treasure. Nothing else mattered. That treasure was everything. And when I think about the church, when I think about who we are as God's children, I think about what it means to be brought close, to have peace made with God through Jesus, the one who's the chief cornerstone, to have experienced his transforming grace, the question I confronted with with that parable is what have I given up to pursue with joy that treasure, that truth? Because you know we're all, every day, confronted with things that want to pull us away from the treasure that is who Jesus is. Yes? Is that fair to say? Every day, every hour, every few minutes it seems like. And and the parable seems to ask me the question, which is worth more to you? this thing that's presenting itself or this treasure. And that's kind of the choice we make. And I think as the world looks at us as the church, if we're honest, more often than not, they see us making the wrong trade. They see us proclaiming, we've got this great treasure, you want to know? And then they watch it and they go, well, why don't they seem to think it's very valuable? because everything else seems to take their attention and time and focus away from the thing that they keep saying is the only thing that matters. True. About me sometimes, yeah. About the church in general sometimes, yeah. How can we live? How can we be God's people in such a way that this parable is how we live out our faith? That when people look at us as the church, they say, those are folks who proclaim this news, who talk about this treasure they found in Jesus, and you can see by the way they live, by how they act, by how they treat each other, by how they treat us, they really mean it. That would be maybe what Paul had in mind when he talked about the manifold wisdom of God in chapter 3, verse 10, or, or what he had in mind when he said we're being joined together become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Maybe that's what happens when we live out Monday through Saturday the thing we gather to talk about for an hour on Sunday. Maybe that's what the world is Thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus. And Lord, I, I can see in even those words of Spurgeon, the reality that often I'm one of those children, those weak children of yours in, in the nursery that's called the church. And I thank you, Lord, that in spite of that, you still have demonstrated your grace to me. Redeem me. Allowed me to know you, to be brought into relationship with you, and Lord. It's my desire that you might manifest your wisdom through our church, and that we might be the kind of church, as we're joined together as your people, that would be filled with your Spirit and display who you are to this world. And Lord, I pray today as we come to our time of response. Maybe for some of us, we we think about. Jesus's parable and we realize other things have distracted us from that great treasure. Maybe today is the day we we get honest before you and we we confess and repent of those things and return to you. Or maybe today is the day we realize that you've put us together with other believers in what we call the church. Not see their faults, but so we might see our own as iron sharpens iron so our lives might be sharpened in our interaction with your people. Maybe we need to confess those failings, those attitudes, even that pride in our own life. Lord, maybe even there's someone here today who doesn't know you and needs to turn to you in faith as they've recognized the great gift that is your son seek your forgiveness and your salvation even in this time. Lord, we give you these moments as we set aside in our service to focus on you and respond to you as you by your Holy Spirit have spoken to our hearts. May you have your way. May we